This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 242 with guest Corinne Zubko. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ask Kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. As always, I am so glad and grateful that you are here. We are talking about anxiety today, and that topic is one of the most downloaded topics. If you look back at all my episodes, anytime we talk about anxiety, those are the most downloaded. So guess what that tells me? That y'all are like me, anxiety girl over here, and you might struggle with it too. Corrine Zubko is my guest today. I'm going to tell you about her in just a second, but I wanted to let you know, y'all, as I'm recording this, there are six spots left for the mentorship, which is a group program that incorporates the daring way work that I do and so much more. This is for women who are ready to take their personal development to the next level. This is not a beginner's program. This is for women who are already established in their personal development journey, but are ready to take the tools that they know and will learn more of with me and apply them to their life. So I am going to jump on a kind of Q&A jam and go over a few things with you And because I think a lot of people aren't really sure what I actually do (laughs) when I work with private clients, because this is actually the same work that I do with private clients in a group setting. So I'm going to jump on a video call on August 28th at three o'clock Eastern time. You don't have to sign up for anything. You just go to yourkickasslife.com slash meet at that particular time. It'll redirect you there. It costs zero dollars. And I'm going to be covering the following. I am going to talk about the four main topics to study in your life that will help you immensely with your confidence, with your relationships with others, and your general well-being. Even if you don't sign up for one of my programs, study these topics and it will help you immensely around your relationships with others, your confidence, and more. I'm also going to talk about what the process of shame resilience actually is. It's a step-by-step process. I'm going to go through that on this video call. And then I'm going to tell you a story of the big surprise I had around 2011 in my coaching practice, which made me change the course of what I do and go in the direction I have stayed in all of these years since 2011. And I love doing these live videos with you. And there will be a replay if you can't make it live. And if you have any questions about the mentorship, you can hop on and ask me. And I just love sharing this work with you. Again, even if you don't think the mentorship is for you right now, you don't want to miss this. Yourkickasslife.com slash meet. Put it in your calendar, August 28th, three o'clock Eastern time. That is noon Pacific. There will be a replay for anybody that wants to watch it. If you miss it, just go to that page. The link of course is in the show notes. All right. Who's ready to talk about anxiety? 
Corinne is my guest today. And before we jump into this conversation, let me tell you a little bit about her. Corinne Zubko is the author of the best-selling book, From Anxiety to Love, a radical new approach for letting go of fear and finding lasting peace. She began her work with A Course in Miracles and mindfulness meditation after struggling with debilitating anxiety and panic attacks and now lives anxiety-free. Corinne is a keynote speaker, adjunct professor of counselor education at the College of New Jersey, a licensed counselor, board-certified coach, and teaches weekly mindfulness meditation classes at a major U.S. financial institution. So without further ado, here is Corinne. Corinne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I know. That's why I have this sing-songy voice. Because I'm <laughs> <Me> excited. <too. laughs> well, and as I was telling you before we started recording, I've had a couple of episodes. In the 250 episodes I've had, I've had a, a couple that were specifically about anxiety. I think I had a listener Q&A episode about that and, and another expert on about it. But they tend to be my most downloaded episodes, my most popular. And that tells me that a lot of y'all listening <laughs> struggle with anxiety, probably anywhere from a low-grade anxiety to clinical anxiety disorder and panic disorder. So I was excited to have you on and and so glad that, that our paths have crossed. And so let's just sort of start from the beginning. I know your book starts with, oh, and everyone, because I haven't mentioned it, From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. Your book starts, opens with a story about you having a panic attack in the middle of the night and calling your mom and, and sort of starting this journey. So either, you know, start there or like, I'm really curious what inspired you to actually write write a book on it. Yeah, so... The inspiration to write this came out of my own complete desperation to find answers for the anxiety that I lived with for most of my life. So when I open the book, I'm actually recounting the story of my very first panic attack, mm-hmm. which was I was a sophomore in college at the time, but I had actually had anxiety for years. And I mean, like since the age of two. So My first psychiatric diagnosis came at that time when I was about one and a half, two years old. That was separation anxiety disorder. My poor mom could not like walk out of the room without me screaming my head off, even in our own house. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then although I grew out of that, I like to talk about fear and anxiety being like a shapeshifter. So let's say it seems to get better in one area, but now it's going to spring a leak. It's going to find a way out in another area. Mm -hmm. So as I outgrew the separation anxiety, I started developing phobias. I couldn't, I actually, as a child was phobic about flushing the toilet because I was terrified it was going to overflow. And I had like some other- My son has that and my son struggles with anxiety. Yeah. And, and so it would come out in all these, you know, different ways. I had an ulcer by the time I was 12 because I was worrying so much. And The incident that happened when I was a sophomore in college was triggered by the death of a student who was a year older than me at the time, and I didn't know him, but supposedly he was at a party the night before, before, totally fine, Mm -hmm. and was dead the next morning from meningitis. And it unraveled me at the seams. I just thought, how can somebody be okay and then suddenly, you know, be gone? And it my my biggest anxiety trigger for the most part of my life was always surrounding health stuff and body stuff. Like, oh my God, what is this physical symptom? Am I, I must be dying. Like, mm-hmm. and I go to the absolute worst case scenario. So when that happened, 
I remember learning about it and feeling this spike of fear just come up through my body and like, oh my God, like, you know, is that going to happen to me? What's going on? But I calmed myself down during the day just to get through the day. And then 3 a.m. that next morning, I was in my bunk bed on the top bunk. I suddenly felt, I was asleep, but suddenly felt like I was woken up because something punched me in the stomach. And it was this flood of stress hormones that just went through my body. I was shaking, sweating. I woke up gasping for air, trembling. I remember climbing down my bunk bed. My knees were so shaky. I felt like I could hardly support my own weight. And back then we didn't have cell phones. So I grabbed Mm -hmm. my room phone and I pulled it out the door and I called my mom at three o'clock in the morning. And magically she heard the phone ring through her earplugs. And she and I basically figured out that I was having a panic attack. And she instilled hope in me that we'd find help for me. And at this point, I had already been to counseling a number of times, but you know, it was time to yeah. get back into therapy. And that was really the beginning of a spiritual opening because that was the absolute I know for people listening, if you've had a panic attack or if you've had intense anxiety, you know that it's almost you can't convey the depth of how much it sucks to somebody who hasn't had it. Like yeah. there's almost no words to describe the fear because it's like it it creates this tunnel vision where suddenly your awareness constricts and you're not aware of anything else. Like all you know, your whole world is just that anxiety, is just that fear. So at that time, that night, my mom had actually already been on a spiritual path and she had tried to talk to me about this book called A Course in Miracles. And at that time, I would be such a snot and I'd literally cover my ears with my hands and I'd say, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Speak to me in English like you used to. I'm not interested in the spiritual crap. Yeah. <laughs> and But here I was now feeling like my psyche just exploded and that my mind just cracked and that I was never going to find my footing again. And when she said, Corinne, like this pathway is all about undoing fear and finding the peace and the love that's already in you. I said, give it to me, bring it. Like I will try absolutely Uh anything. So that was my opening. And it's funny because I think most people coming to a spiritual pathway, we don't do this for just the fun of it. (laughs) Like Uh it's usually some kind of like, rock bottom, you know, troubling, hard experience that brings us to a point of really being, being willing to do the work and really, you know, face our, our, our garbage, our, our baggage. Mm -hmm. So that is really why I wrote the book, because as I started studying the course and really getting into it, I started finding that the anxiety issues that I was living with and I want to just say it wasn't an overnight thing at all. This was very much a journey. But as I started really making strides in recovery and fears just falling away, this was about 2010, I started writing about what was helping me. And the result is in the pages of From Anxiety to Love. It's all about those principles of the Course in Miracles that helped me um, recover to have those anxiety disorders, which is panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I now lift those light years from me. So it's been a miraculous journey that I'm so grateful for. That's so interesting. I think for, for me, I don't remember having that much anxiety when I was younger. It sort of escalated in my late teens and then very much so into my 20s. And <laughs> I remember the first time I had a panic attack, um, well, I well the first time I had ever even heard about them was hearing about my dad. My dad had had one, um, and it was God, the poor guy. He was driving when it happened, mm-hmm. and 
it was really bad and the ambulance had to come and get him. And, and I remember just thinking that that's how they were always, like they were always that bad. And then I had one where I was on the phone with my friend. And I think that what triggered it was telling her about my, my former relationship was my trigger, like just anxiety inducing. It was a, it was a bad relationship. And I was telling her about something that happened and I was pacing as I was talking to her. And I, and then I remember my fingers started to get numb and tingly. I started dry heaving. And I, if I had had food in my stomach, I would have thrown it up, but it was, it was like you were describing that tunnel vision and that feeling like the heart racing and sweating and my armpits were tingling. And it's just, it was, I was like, what is happening? And and I kind of knew like, because of what, you know, I had heard about my dad and doing a, a little bit of research and just learning about what it was. And then that's what prompted me to go to the doctor. And then they gave me this questionnaire, which I'm sure has happened to some people. And, you know, I'm answering all the questions. And then I was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder and moderate panic disorder. Mm -hmm. And for me, full disclosure, medication did help me. And what that taught me was, oh, you mean people can have reactions that are different? (laughs) It was like, kind of like, this is, is this what normal feels like? Because I don't ever remember feeling this way. And I was on medication for a couple of years and have, have not been on it for a long time, but being not on it has made me kind of like, okay, what are the things that I need to do to stabilize this? Because it it came back with my pregnancies with both of them. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which trimester, but both of them, it was like around the same time. It just spiked to the point where I couldn't even drive anymore. I'd be on the freeway and go into like full panic attacks. Mm -hmm. It's always really interesting to me. I'm fascinated with how other people healed. And I think that there are different modalities and and I think that anytime personal development is involved, like I'm going to applaud that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so what do you feel like is the biggest lesson that you've learned through your journey with anxiety? Wow. So that's a big question. And actually, my, the biggest – well, actually, I'm going to step back for one second before I answer that question because I just want to respond to what you just said about um different modalities of healing. And I so agree with that because we're all different. Mm -hmm. We all need to find what works for us. And I want to highlight too, I take a very middle of the road approach with medication because I used it too at a period of time. In the beginning, I didn't because my fear then was that if I started it, I'd never want to go off of it. Okay. And I want to always ask me that question about medication. So I'm glad we just like get that out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, at that time, just really wanted to know what is actually making me feel better without medication being in the way. But hmm. I had another really significant debilitating episode in 2009. And it was then that I needed some support. And that's yeah. exactly what I looked at it as. It's a form of support. It's going to be something that I'm going to use for a time being while I am you know, still doing the work and doing the personal development stuff, because that is so key. I think it's always not a good idea to just rely on medicine. We always need to be looking for those skills. That you know, and, and doing that, that developmental work. So I think you um, have to do what works for you. And, you know, obviously you guys already know, but I'm going to say it again. We are not doctors. Talk to your medical doctor. <laughs> but I do think that it, it can work for some and it's not right for others. So yeah, it's, it's a very personal choice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So going back to your question about the biggest lesson that I've learned from anxiety. Now, what I might start to say might sound totally out there. <laughs> so I just want to like preface this because this, 
is what worked for me. And just like you said, we all are different and we have to find different modalities. My anxiety was very existential. So I would wrestle when, when that student died back when I was in college, I was like, you know, if people say that God is love, like how can a loving God create things that die? Like Mm -hmm. that just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me. Like it, it, I really wrestled with questions like, why are we here? What's the point of all this? And so I was looking for those big picture types of answers that I didn't ever really get answered when I was in therapy, even though I try to bring them up from time to time. But the biggest lesson then that I've learned from my anxiety is that the small sense of self, so this term ego, which I'm sure we've all heard before, it's a term that's used in many different ways. And of course, in Miracles uses the term ego, and I use it in my book. We can think about ego as this fearful part of our mind that tells us that we are small, that tells us that we are this limited sense of self that's separate from everything we see and everyone we know. And it's that it's that inner critic that you talk about. It's mm-hmm. that voice that we all know so well that brings us down and is full of judgment and fear. So the biggest lesson I've learned from anxiety is that that voice, that ego voice is not who I am. It's not who we are. There's another voice. There's another identity within us that's waiting for us to, you know, remember it. And this other voice is the voice of love. So we all have a thought system in our minds that is there. It's quieter than the ego voice. It is telling us of our magnitude of our love that exists within every single one of us. And the thing is that it's, it's quiet. (laughs) It's not like that loud inner critic voice. Um, It's on loop all the time. Exactly. So we have to start to learn how to tune into this other voice in our minds. And so my biggest lesson is through the anxiety, I've learned that that voice of love, that that higher self is actually our true identity. It's my true identity. It's the identity that all of us have, and it's what connects us all. And I like to think about it of as being love with a capital L. Mm-hmm. And so is that the voice that you call the inner therapist? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what I thought. Yep. And so, ex- so you just explained it. And do you, I think that because there's so much to unpack for, not that there is, but there can be so much to unpack for people around the word God and the people that listen to this are all different kinds of beliefs. And so do you feel like someone has to be spiritual to do this work or what are your, what are your, what's your take on that? My take is that you don't have to believe in God. Now, the first thing I want to say is that when you hear that word, and I totally agree with you, we have so much baggage surrounding Mm -hmm. that word. When I use that word, I'm not referring to a dude with a white beard who's sitting upstairs and orchestrating things. It's like a word, judging right, you. <laughs> right, judging and keeping, you know, keeping score. I, when I use that word, I am talking about a eternal, all-encompassing love with a capital L, like a divine love, a love of the universe that permeates everything. So I don't think you have to consider yourself spiritual or believe in any kind of higher power. But I do think that you need to believe in love and compassion and that that is something that's worth cultivating in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes. And I, I talk about the inner critic a lot over here, you know, what, what you call the ego. So I, I'm pretty sure my listeners are familiar with that. And I don't know if I have a voice for Like I might call the inner therapist maybe your intuition. And I love that. To me, that's, you know, your highest self. I've done, you know, it's interesting to me when I first started on this path, 
and really dove into just the training to to become a life coach. That was probably the, some of the deepest work I've ever done. I remember doing visualizations and I thought that was like so woo-woo. I'm like, oh my God, here we go again. <laughs> and it really kind of blew my mind, like not not to sound dramatic, but I was like, oh, that's really nice, you know, to this, this – um my highest self and to think about that person. And, and so for someone who's sort of new to the work, distinguishing, they're, they're probably fairly familiar with the voice of the ego, but for them to, you know, how can they start to distinguish the voice between that and what you call the inner therapist? Because I get that question a lot. Like, how do I determine, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's, you know, I hear my fear voice, but how do I determine between my intuition or inner therapist and the ego slash inner critic? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that question often as well. And first of all, just like you said, so we know that inner critic ego voice well. We know what that sounds like. The voice of the inner therapist, that intuitive voice, that highest self voice is often not a voice. So it's not something that I hear. I don't hear words. It's a feeling. And we all, I think, can experience this differently. Some people might experience guidance or intuition as words, but I think majority of people have that. It's like that gut feeling, you know, mm. in your stomach or in your chest or some place in your body. And so I actually have an exercise in the book, and this is actually um, from the work of another spiritual teacher by the name of John Mark Stroud. And he walks us through this in a podcast episode that I have on where I interviewed him on one of my episodes where basically, and I'll, I'll bring us through this right now. If you think about a radio and if you think about the old school radios that used to have knobs <laughs> where you had to actually, you know, change that little dial and you could tune in, you know, fine tune to a certain frequency, you wouldn't go to a country music radio station and get mad that they're not playing hip hop. Yeah. What would you do? You would just change the channel. You would tune into a different frequency. And so that's what we have to do. We can't expect that the highest self voice, the inner therapist voice is going to come through the same channel as the inner critic voice. We have to tune into a different place in our body. So Right now, if we if if you're not driving and if you're able to close your eyes, one of the exercises that you can do is to just say, okay, intuition, highest self, inner therapist, whatever you want to call it, please direct my attention to a place in my own body where I can most easily attune to your guidance. And just see where your attention goes, where it goes in your body. And you can ask yourself this question again. So Again, inner therapist, please direct my attention to a place in my body where I can most easily attune to your guidance and just see where your attention goes. For some people, it might be, I, I've heard this from massage therapists or Reiki practitioners, it's their hands. For other folks, for me, it's kind of like a core, a feeling of like my core going through my my chest and my gut. Other people, it's just their stomach or just their chest or, mm. you know, different places in your body and you can play with this. You can really try to play with this um, exercise and see. And then when you are trying to tune into that guidance, bring your attention to that part of your body rather than up in your head. Try to drop out of your head and into your body and into that place and, and see see what you get. So that's just one way of practicing distinguishing between the two voices. I love that. And because I've heard that um, 
kind of metaphor before about you know if you're if you're talking about the law of attraction and your frequency and vibrations and and radio stations and, and things like that but when you were saying that what i realized that i've never realized before is that when i meditate and my listeners know i've had an interesting somewhat tumultuous relationship with meditation that's actually gotten a lot better. I think we're on the upswing, everybody. I think we're on the upswing. (laughs) But one of the things that I – because I really try to just go with whatever I feel like needs to happen, even if it doesn't make any sense, because a lot of times it doesn't make sense, and that makes me uncomfortable. And I have – and I have not told anybody this. I have been – you know, I close my eyes when I meditate, and I put my hands in prayer hands – And they always want to go to my head, to my forehead. I don't know why. And there's nothing I've ever done before. And as you were saying that, I'm like, now I know why, because it's the third Mm -hmm. eye chakra and Mm -hmm. it's intuition. And it's one of those things where (laughs) – I can't believe I never noticed that before. I just felt like it was so weird. So I'm always like – not always, but like many times I'm sitting there in meditation, you know, with my thumbs against my forehead, hands in prayer. And like I'm thinking like if anybody walked in and saw this, it'd be like – actually, my husband probably wouldn't be surprised now that I just bought a cauldron for my witch spells. But, you know, it's just like (laughs) kind of unusual for Andrea. So I am happy that you said that because it made me realize that because the third eye chakra – from what I understand, my very limited knowledge of chakras is is intuition. So thank you, Corinne. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. I absolutely love that. I really do. And and so another thing just to add about this distinguishing between these two voices is that um, I heard you talk about this in one of your other shows that that inner critic voice doesn't go away. You know, it's not like it's mm-hmm. going to stop. And suddenly we're just going to always be able to hear, you know, our intuition. It's going to keep that ego voice is going to persist. And it so knowing that, like it plays on a loop. Yeah, it sure does. And so it's not, there's a quote from A Course in Miracles that I, I'm paraphrasing. It's not that we're going to stop having those ego thoughts or judgmental thoughts. It's that we have none that we would keep. So when we're trying to tune into guidance and we're feeling bombarded by the ego, we can say, we can actually talk to the part of our higher mind. We can talk to our intuitive part and say, hey, help. Like, I really, really want to get clear on this. I'm willing to see these fearful thoughts differently. I'm willing to hand them over. Help me. And so we can actually dialogue with the intuitive part of our mind because it's a part of our mind. It's not anything separate from us. And, you know, ask for some uh, guidance, some for, for some assistance in getting guidance. <laughs> I love that. I was talking to Alianka. Polyanko was on on the podcast and we were talking about what do you ask for when you're doing rituals or when you're doing meditation. And that's one of the things that it sounds similar to what you were just saying. Like I ask just to be shown the way mm-hmm. by my spirit guides and things like that. So because I think sometimes we get caught up in like what am I supposed to ask for? And like, do I want a million dollars or <laughs> all these things? And, and I'm like, hey, if I meant to have a million dollars landing in my lap, then so be it. Just show me the way. So. Right. Yeah. And you know what? With that question, I love that question. What do I even ask for? Anybody listening who has anxiety, you know that peace of mind is no small gift. And yeah. so that's my prayer for not just for myself, but for all is, you know, praying for that, that peace of mind, because hurt people hurt people. Yeah. If we were all happy and peaceful ourselves, the world would be, you know, a very, very different place. And so praying for that peace of mind, asking for peace of mind and being, 
you know, asking to be shown the way to that peace of mind, what beliefs do we have to let go of? What fears do we have to look at with our inner therapist? That can be a very healing process. I remember when I when I had more anxiety and I would do this morning ritual where I think the question I would answer every day was something like, "What do? how do I want to feel today? Like, what am I asking for? And day after day, I did not change it. It was, it was always peace and ease mm-hmm. because I struggled with that so much. So I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I love that word ease mm-hmm. also, because if you think about what's the opposite of ease, but strain and how often in our busy to-do list and our crazy schedules in our culture are we feeling a sense of dis-ease or strain where it's constantly like, oh, I got to get to the next thing. And so that feeling of ease of being able to approach our to-do list with a more relaxed attitude just can completely transform our day. Yeah. All right. Well, so what if I can't, I know I'm not the only one who's had a weird tumultuous relationship with, with meditation. And I, and I ask pretty much anyone who comes on my podcast, who talks about meditation, I ask them this question. (laughs) (laughs) What advice do you have to offer for those who have either never meditated or feel like they're doing it wrong and they're just failures at it? Where where does one start? I love that question because the type of meditation that I teach is a meditation that I say you cannot fail at as long as you're willing to bring whatever your experience is into your awareness. So mindfulness meditation is – I wouldn't say my book is about mindfulness, but there are elements of mindfulness um, in the meditations in my book because mindfulness is all about paying attention. So Mm. if you think about it, we are so busy and so distracted, and even when we're doing something, our minds can be somewhere else. The practice of mindfulness is all about being fully present and with whatever it is that you're doing as you're doing it. So for folks who feel like, you know, I try to sit down and close my eyes and I just have a rush of that monkey mind and a million thoughts if you can just be aware that that's happening, you are practicing mindfulness meditation and you don't even have to close your eyes to do this. So one of the great practices in mindfulness is more of an informal practice. Do what you need to do throughout your day. So let's use the example of washing the dishes. You're standing at the sink and typically what would we do? We'd wash it. We'd be thinking about what we have to do next and just kind of mindlessly going through it. Instead, practice paying attention to one dish at a time, feeling the soapy bubbles and the warm water and smelling the soap and you know, paying attention as you scrub down that dish, it becomes really only washing the dish instead of washing the dishes because mm-hmm. you're only doing one at a time. So you can bring this quality of paying attention into everything that you do. And as you do that throughout the day, that can be strengthened by a more formal practice where even if you sit down for not even five minutes, let's say two minutes, one minute, anything counts, where you just sit and become aware of what's happening around you. One of my favorite practices, it's summer, it's, it's well, spring right now, but we've had a few hot summer days here in New Jersey where I love to just open the window and listen to the birds and just fully pay attention to the sounds outside and bringing every time my mind wanders, because it will, that's normal, Every time it wanders, you just choose to not judge yourself for the wandering and you choose to bring your attention back to listening or whatever, you know, anchor you might be working with, whether it's your breath or a body sensation. So I like to say you can't fail at meditation as long as you're willing to bring whatever you're experiencing into your awareness and start with washing the dishes. (laughs) I love that. I think you could even do that with like washing your hair and uh, the things that invite us to slow down 
instead of, you know, I, I know like a lot of my listeners, I, I'm being pulled in a lot of different directions and we're so distracted with our phones. And it's, it's so, it, it has, I feel like it's become so much easier for us to do, 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 go, go, go than it is to slow down. I think that's why people, myself included, have felt a struggle with meditation. So baby steps, everybody. Total baby steps. And if you think about it, you know, there's no structure in our culture that encourages us to slow down. There is definitely no, it's not something, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) So we have to remember, you know, we're in a society that's very fast paced and nothing out there is going to say, hey, go get quiet. We have to be the ones to choose to do that for ourselves. Yes. And then it actually, I think what I had a hard time believing is that slowing down and taking this time to try to quote unquote master meditation was actually going to help me. I was like, I I don't believe you. (laughs) So yeah, you know, I, I can, I totally get that. We have to really experience the benefits to really start to want to do it more. And I can definitely be a big nerd in terms of looking at, you know, some research and there's more mindfulness meditation research than I possibly know Mm -hmm. at this point, because it's just been so looked at in so many ways, but it's been shown to give the immune system a boost to actual, you know, to, to actually changing um, wiring in the brain. And it's the, the eight week mindfulness based stress reduction class that's become so popular in actually the whole world, not just the States has been shown to help significantly with depression, anxiety, all sorts of quality of life issues and, you know, physical ailments as well. So the research is really exciting if you're a research junkie. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I am too, like, show me, show me the science, show me the facts. And I, I feel like for me, it just, it feels better to be in that place of, you know, I concentrate my meditation on, like I was saying before, just focusing on asking for whatever it is that I need. And I, because again, like I get really caught up in the specifics and mm-hmm. I need to have the right question that I, my intention, I think those are all great if, if that works for you. But once I let that go and just concentrated on what do I need to do, have, be in order to be my best self so that I can be a better leader, so that I can be a better mom and wife and friend and facilitator of this community so that I can empower other women. I mean, that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. And that's enough. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And that's really where. For all of us, for you, for me, for everybody who feels, I mean, we're all in some type of community that we're leading, whether we realize it or not, the greatest gift that we can give is, is to heal ourselves, is to, you know, work on ourselves and to then be able to um, live by example from that place. And that has a huge impact on, on others. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that we love methodologies and and processes and stuff like that. So you have like a three-step recipe for healing in the book. So can you share that? Yeah. So this recipe is based on the principles of A Course in Miracles. And this is the recipe. So it is focused on anxiety in my book, but I've had people tell me who have read the book, like, gosh, this can really be used for anything. And yes, it absolutely can, not just anxiety. This is what I use for, for anything that I'm struggling with in my life. The three-step recipe is number one, find your willingness to see your problem differently. So willingness is the precursor for change. Mm -hmm. Whatever we want 
to be different in our lives, we've got to be willing to see it differently, to have it change. We have to really, you know, tap into that sense of willingness to have a shift first. So that's step number one. I will add that honesty, radical honesty is something else that I talk about in the book. And that's so important in this work, because if you ask yourself, let's say you have a relationship conflict and you ask yourself, am I willing to see this differently? If you're radically honest, the answer might be no, Mm because they were a jerk and you're right and they're wrong, right? (laughs) So we've got to be super honest in answering that question. Am I willing? And if the answer is no, I'm not willing. My little trick that I use is, okay, well, am I willing to be willing to see this differently? Yeah, sure. You know, like, okay, I'm not willing right now. That's a different question. I'm Mm -hmm. willing to be willing. So that kind of brings you into that that willingness space of, you know, being willing to see things differently. So that's step number one. Step number two is to turn to your inner therapist. So we touched on this already with that idea of dialoguing with your higher mind. So we might say something like inner therapist, I, or higher mind, I'm willing to see this differently. Please, you know, take my willingness and give me the miracle instead. So we're literally asking for step two, We're asking our higher mind to take our willingness to see our problem differently and to give us a miracle instead. And a miracle can be defined in one of of two ways. A miracle is either a shift in perception. It's a shift in perception from fear to love, or a miracle can be defined as an expression of love. So oftentimes when we receive a miracle, you know, it can be a very internal process it might be a renewed sense of peace about something. It might be that we see something differently, or it might be that we have a loving interaction with someone, whereas before it was just, you know, lots of conflict. Mm -hmm. So step number one, find your willingness. Step number two, give your willingness to your inner therapist and ask for the miracle instead. And step number three is to trust that it's done. Now, I'm sorry. This is the hardest step. Yeah, that's why I was laughing. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Cause we can go through all three and be like, okay, great. You know, nothing happens or nothing happened. Now what? So this trust step, this is where, you know, of course, miracles teaches us that the answer is actually given the moment that we ask. However, we might still be so caught up in fear. We might still have, you know, enough fear blocks in our minds that we're not aware of the answer. We're not aware of, or we have, you know, we're not ready to receive that shift yet. So trusting can be really hard, Mm -hmm. but it's like a muscle. We start to do this work and have experiences that actually show us that like, there's kind of something to this process. And those experiences that we have can build our trust, you know, as we go along. And so step number three becomes easier and easier. But I do break this down and we look at this in a bunch of different ways with more steps when it feels like just trusting is like, you know, way too hard. <laughs> or that the it's such a big just- word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is such a big word. I agree. <laughs> well, and I, I love just on a side note, one of the things I love about your book is that you have action step recaps in every chapter and like a list of mantras to use and journal prompts. And that is so important to me in self-help because I've read so many self-help books that were great, but they were, it was just someone talking at me. And 
I know that a lot of my listeners also love self-help books and they know that I talk about this all the time, that it is about doing the work. And so everyone from anxiety to love, a radical new approach for letting go of fear and finding lasting peace definitely has all of those things in there. You know, like I love having, like, let's be honest, like three-step processes are great. And, but just doing, it's just, it's doing the work. And, And speaking of trust, I think that trust is one of those things that, you know, self-trust, it sounds like mostly this is, I have to, it's sort of an ebb and flow dance that I've done. And I'll fall into that fear and scarcity and lack, you know, exclamation marks. And then I trust and like, I'm talking to myself like, okay, has this ever happened to me before? No. Or maybe yes, it has, but I survived it. And and then back to panicking and scared. And, and <laughs> so it's like, oh God. Yeah. It's like yeah. doing the samba with trust. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I want to highlight too that the development of trust is a process. It's mm-hmm. not something that happens overnight. There's a whole section in A Course in Miracles on the development of trust. And this really, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, the small self, that small ego self versus the higher self, this process of healing in this modality from this perspective is about a shift in identity. And if you think about it, we spend a lifetime, you know, building up our identities. And Mm -hmm. here in this work, we're now learning how to shift our identity from, you know, my identity as Corinne, which of course I still wake up thinking I'm Corinne every day, but it's, it's a, an internal change of mind where now I'm starting to identify with a different part of my mind, with a different part of myself, my higher self, mm-hmm. instead of that small self. And just like any new identity that we might develop, it can take some time to get to know that part of ourselves and to get comfortable with it. So yeah. it isn't you know, a switch that just flips and suddenly you're healed. I studied A Course in Miracles for a solid, I think, 11 years and had that additional, you know, major meltdown in 2009 and then really started deepening my practice and really shifting my identity. And again, I'm not saying that I'm there or that I'm perfect, but I really started living this and finding like, for instance, now I used to be a phobic person about getting on an airplane. Like Mm -hmm. I would write goodbye letters to my family just in case. Yeah, like it was so anxiety provoking for me. If I was on a plane, I'd either have to be on medication or be like holding myself desperately in a state of meditation the entire time in order to not freak out. I'm now flying as comfortably up there as I am like sitting in my chair right mm-hmm. now, even on like turbulent flights. So this I'm speaking, you know, from experience that this process has really worked for me. And I believe that we all need to find that process that works for us and really dive in and stick to it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I, I, even if you've listened to this and you don't struggle with, you know, clinical anxiety, I think that everyone, again, like I was saying in the very beginning, struggles somewhere on the spectrum and even just being in that place of scarcity and, and lack and, and fear. I mean, that's, that's anxiety to some extent. And it's interesting. Speaking of phobias, just real quick before we wrap it up. I, oh my gosh, if you follow me on Instagram, you might've seen my Instagram stories about my drain phobia. And so I know it's ridiculous. Okay. So (laughs) it started when I was a little kid. And if anyone is my age, you might remember like in the eighties, there was this big drain scare with pools and jacuzzis. Because back then, do you remember this at all? You're, I think you're younger yeah. than your friend, but you might remember. 
No, I'm. It's coming back. They I think I know what you're going to say. the laws, and I think most states, if not all of them, where the drain covers have to be different now because they yep. were basically like sucking people down, especially yep. if you had long hair. And so I've yep. always had long hair, and we got a jacuzzi, and it was very scary. I never touched the bottom of the jacuzzi. I would like swim from one end to the other, and just was always afraid of them. And even in swimming lessons, like I, I just it took everything I had just to like jump off the diving board into the deep end and I would frantically swim up. I mean, it was like 12 feet deep, so I wasn't even close to the bottom, but just terrified of drains. And my husband actually, when we were first together, I was telling him about it. And he's like, what are you, like, what is scary about them? And I'm like, okay, it's the entire drain system. Like, you don't know what's down there. And he's like, mm-hmm. yes, you do. It's water. <laughs> Pipes. <laughs> I'm like, no, nothing ever good happens in movies and books and, like, the, the book It, like, with the any kind of sewer. <laughs> but it's funny because he's like, but I've seen you step on, like, if we're walking, like, on a street where there's, like, like, in New York City or something in the subway. Like, I'll walk over a grate if I have my shoes on. But it's like bare feet. I can't do it. And I'd listen, I'd rather not walk over even with my my shoes on. And if I have flip-flops in a shower, I can step on the drain. But I straddle the drain. Like I do wow. not. And even if my foot, if I have my eyes closed and I'm washing my hair and I my foot like touches the metal, it's like I, like a rat just like ran in there. And it's like <laughs> so anyway. I'm training for this triathlon. As we're recording this, I'm at the very tail end of it. And there's been several times. And partly why I got into triathlon in the first place in 2010 was because of this fear. Because, well, A, because I I felt like I couldn't do it, a triathlon. And I just wanted to see if I could. And B, because I knew I, I also have a fear of open water. That's a different story. But, you know, along the same lines as drains. I have a point, I promise. But <laughs> it's it, being in a pool, in a large, like Olympic-sized pool when those drains are no joke mm-hmm. and not only just being in there, but I feel much safer if there's like a lot of people in the pool, but going in by myself to swim laps, there's a lifeguard there, but she's like 19, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, mm. <laughs> so anyway, the other day, and I've come a long way from this. I just, I've learned to just not look at it. Um, So I'm swimming. This was like just a couple of days ago swimming. And I look over and my thought was, gosh, I haven't really like been that afraid of the drains lately. And I'm I'm looking kind of like at the drain, which I know not to do. And then my next thought is I had seen this picture, this video on YouTube and there was like a broken drain that was like really old and it's like all dark in there. I thought of that thought. And then I was, it's, it's so, my point is like, it's so amazing how quickly our brain can just like grab us by the wrists and like take us down like no you're gonna think these thoughts but my point is is that I knew where it was headed and I told myself like nope it's just it's not gonna happen and so I just didn't look at it and told myself like I'm safe it's totally fine and just had this whole process that I take myself through so I tell that story because I think that if you commit to really loving yourself through that process and because I could beat myself up for it and be like, it's so stupid. What are you, eight years old, like afraid of drains? And I'm like, I'm going to tell everybody, <laughs> all y'all, 50,000 of you a month that I'm afraid of drains. It's just, it's being compassionate with yourself and and doing the work because I don't want to be, I don't want to not be able to swim in a pool because of that. 
Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And another, you know, thing that I want to just highlight about your story is the awareness piece. Like we really, as we do this work, we build an awareness muscle where you had that awareness to catch yourself, to see where, where your brain was taking mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. all those associations that were coming up and you were able to use that awareness to interrupt it and say, nope, Hey, I'm, I'm safe. I'm fine. And that's the same thing, you know, with what I'm teaching in this book as well. It's all about that awareness. When we hear that ego voice come up with that, tempting fear thought that is, you know, bait. It's like, it's, it's almost like the ego. I I talk about this in the book. It's like the ego holding out that hook, that bait that it's hoping we're going to take. We have to use that awareness that we're building to see it and to say, no, you know, I'm, I'm choosing again, I'm going to do something different here. And it's a, it's a practice. It is. And I love that you used the word paying attention because that's the word I use instead of mindfulness, because Uh it's that mindfulness can feel a little hippy dippy for people and they don't understand Mm -hmm. it, but it is. And the the way that I've gotten to that point is, and the same with inner critic work and and listening to the ego and it, and it's not that it doesn't happen to me anymore. The same as, you know, being afraid of the drain and seeing it there. It's that I catch it so fast now. And it's really the same with my inner critic. I I might spend like 30 seconds there and before I realize what's happening and then again use the tools to get out of it and before it would just take me down and and then and, and then guide my choices and my behaviors and my feelings and that just feels terrible. So it just just give trying to give people hope there that keep doing the work. It is like you say in your book, it is not it's all a journey and Mm -hmm. we have setbacks and we just get back up and keep going and it's a process. Yep. Yep. 100%. I have one more question for you before we we close up. And I'd like to ask this question to my guests who, who work, especially with, with women and and specifically around this topic and in working with women and anxiety, what is the thing that either surprises you the most about doing this work or the thing that you love the most about doing this work? Ah, I love that question. The thing that I love the most about doing this work is seeing people reconnect with what's already in them. So it's not like, you know, I don't come from a perspective. I, I, I come from a perspective that our greatest strengths, the love that's in us, the peace that's in us, it's already there and that we just have those layers of fear that are covering it. And what I love about doing this work is witnessing people shedding those layers of fear and just reclaiming what is already in Mm -hmm. them, that beauty already there. And that's so incredibly fulfilling to me. It's beautiful to watch. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for being here. This has been such an educational and great conversation. So fun. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, everyone, the links are in the show notes. I highly encourage you to go out and get this book. Like I said, one of the things I love about it is that it invites you to actually do the work. It's not just her talking at you and telling you things. It's an invitation to walk through your own process of this and see what works for you so you can heal your anxiety, even if it's a low grade or or clinical um, anxiety and panic disorder. Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else that you want to say before before we close up? I will just leave with words that my stepfather said to me when I was flat out on his and my mom's couch with having really bad panic attacks. And I remember having like mascara stains, you know, down my cheeks. He looked at me and he said, Corinne, the light in you is too bright to fail. And so I say that to everybody listening, the light in you is too bright to fail. No matter what you're struggling with, 
we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. We are okay already. (laughs) We are okay already. And thank you listeners for taking the time to spend this last 45 minutes or so with us. I know how important and valuable your time is. Thank you so very much. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 